writer Paul Theroux has found that travel can boost your spirit and keep you feeling young. Travelers have to be optimistic. No one would leave home if he wasn't or she wasn't an optimist. He shares how his curiosity about places and people has motivated a lifetime of travels. In her latest TV series of Places to Love, Samantha Brown found that COVID closures kept her closer to home. But that didn't stop her from enjoying a few good road trips to some of the second-tier destinations, where a good value often comes with a good time. It's the B-side cities that actually offer, I think, a traveler a lot more. And we're starting by checking in with friends from Europe on how they're gearing up for the holidays. We'll hear what Paris is like in the winter and how Santa is no stranger to Ireland's west coast. They would maybe leave out a little uh, glass of Guinness there for him, carrots and a turnip for the reindeers. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, you can savor Europe's most exciting experiences and sights through a hundred of my favorite travel stories. Imagine hanging from an alpine ridge, dancing at a Turkish circumcision party, and swinging with a bell ringer in a medieval church spire. You can order your copy of For the Love of Europe at ricksteves.com. A retired police chief and occasional Santa's helper from the west of Ireland lets us in on what brand of beer Santa Claus prefers. And we'll hear how Paris retains its style, even when you have to bundle up in the dead of winter. And in just a bit, TV travel presenter Samantha Brown explores what we can expect to get out of our travels, even when a pandemic makes us rearrange our plans. It's all in the hour ahead. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. Let's start today's Travel with Rick Steves with novelist and travel writer Paul Theroux. His much-heralded writing career since 1967 has taken him on train rides across Africa and Asia to the back roads of the American South. He crafted his latest novel to reflect life around his home base on Oahu's North Shore. It's called Under the Wave at Waimea. Paul, aloha. Uh, Rick, it's it's lovely to be here. You know, Paul, you could just enjoy life in Hawaii and read your fan mail, but you keep on working. What motivates you? What what powers you as you turn 80 years old to keep cranking out novels? I'd say two things. One is a love of, of travel, curiosity, curiosity about places. The other is when you get older and you've seen the direction that the world is going, the changes, the only way to verify the true changes in the world, the alteration of this planet, is by travel back to a place that you know well. And, you know, I like that because you've said that you, instead of seeing new places all the time, you like to go back to the same places because then you can track the trajectory and actually see what's happening, how it's evolving. That's right. Yeah. And the first, the first trip I took was in December 1963. It wasn't a trip. It was a commitment. I became a Peace Corps volunteer in a small school in Malawi. It was called Nyasaland then, so it was Central Africa. To get to Central Africa then, I flew from New York to Rome, Rome to Libya, Benghazi, Libya, to Nairobi, another flight, next flight, fourth flight, Salisbury, southern Rhodesia, and then the flight to Blantyre in Nyasaland. So it was, and it took a week mm. because we stopped, we stopped in Rome, we're overnight in Rome, overnight in Nairobi, over, overnight in Salisbury. It was a long trip. Now you get on a plane, you can fly mm -hmm. from New York to Joburg, say, to Nairobi, and one more flight, you could be there. 
Paul, I got an email from Jesse in Honolulu, and, and he wrote us, he said, I had planned to spend three months traveling in Italy with a particular focus on its culinary traditions. Unfortunately, I was scheduled to depart in March of last year and had to cancel the trip. So I read most of Paul Theroux's travel books during the next few months and was able to learn about faraway places and people through his writing. And it made me wonder, uh, Paul, what gives you most satisfaction in your work? Because you, you work hard, and when you look back on a career spanning nearly 60 years, you must have some things that really are satisfying and maybe a few regrets. When you look back, what do you see? The most satisfying thing is is seeing things before they change. I traveled in the Pacific before computers, before fax machines, before cell phones. So to see a place before and after is is a great thrill. And to write about it, I was writing about Pacific Islands when they weren't really connected by the Internet. You know, and, and I've wondered about that myself, Paul, because, you know, I took the hippie bus road from Istanbul to Kathmandu, and it was a trip of a lifetime, but it was 50 years ago. Are there still those epic travel opportunities today, or have things become so homogenized and globalized that it's just more difficult to have those great, you know, railway bazaars? I couldn't do the railway bazaar now, and you couldn't do the hippie trail because you'd have to go through Afghanistan. You went through Afghanistan, so did I. No one can go through Afghanistan now. Even Iran would be difficult. But I went through Turkey, Iran, and Afghanistan. So you'd have to choose a different route, but you'd need to use a little imagination. But that's the way of the world. The world is is changing. And travel writing and travel is a way of showing what the world was like, the way things were, uh, what we were like as a planet. And that's why if someone said no one should be in doubt of of going to a place, you have to go because it may change and it may change radically and it may be impossible to go again. And that's true of the Mediterranean. It's true of the American South. It's true of Mexico. It's true of any way you think of that when you go and you see it, you're seeing something that may not last and, and you may go back and it won't be there anymore. I get that feeling that if you don't take this opportunity, you might lose the opportunity. And now you've just turned 80 years old. Uh, I'm wondering, do you look at your sort of your situation kind of like an hourglass and the sand is running out? And what are you going to do for your, your legacy? Uh, what are you going to do to, I don't think you're a religious person. What are you going to do about immortality or do you care about that? I think about it. I, I often think of my ashes being scattered under the wave at Waimea uh, mm-hmm. on the north shore of, of Oahu. But then when, when, when I'm asked the question, I often think, you know, I'm the same age as Dick Cheney, Martha Stewart, Bob Dylan. So Bob, if you said to Bob Dylan, um, when are you going to hang up your guitar? Bob would probably say, you know, I got no plans to do that, man. Mm. <laughs> and so I have no plans. Travel makes me feel young. An older person is kind of invisible. So I I would say writing is a joyous activity for me. I've never found it difficult to be a writer. Real jobs, picking pineapples, that's a real job. Writing isn't a hard job. It's it's a very joyous thing and to me. And also as you've as you've written 50 books, Paul, isn't your autobiography hidden in there? I mean, I don't think you're going to write an autobiography, but you've kind of done it through your body of work if you really understood what you've written. Yeah, I have no plans to write a, an autobiography. And I suppose the important events in my life are in my work. I've written 56. I've published 56 books. And I'm working on one at the moment, my pandemic book, you know, my lockdown book. And I have a three-book contract with my publisher. So, I've, I've, you know, there's plenty happening. I have no plans to stop. And my legacy will be my books in print. A lot of writers, when they die or 
later, their books are not in print. Mm-hmm. F. Scott Fitzgerald died. None of his books were in print. Anyone could buy my book on Amazon or anywhere else. So that, to me, is a great satisfaction. My legacy will have to take care of itself, though. And I'd just like to keep going, stay healthy, keep writing. Well, well and that's how you stay healthy is keep going and keep traveling and, and keep writing, I would imagine. Paul Theroux is our guest on Travel with Rick Steves. Paul tells us more about his lifetime of travels and what prompted his book, Under the Wave at Waimea, on his previous visits with us. You'll find links at ricksteves.com slash radio. Hey, Paul, when you are traveling, I think you generally travel alone when you're working. Is that just so that you can get more done? Yes, it's a distraction. I love my wife. I'm in love with my wife. But traveling with her is a different experience. You, you don't need someone to say, hey, look at that. And I, don't, I would worry about, is she hungry? Is yep. she tired? Is yep. she uncomfortable? I keep going. I tend to, to push it like the 500 miles a day. Yeah, I'm, when I'm traveling, when I'm, traveling I'm like you. In a normal year, I spend 100 days on the road, and I just don't want to be polite. I mean, I like to be a polite person, but when I'm working, I'm sort of single-minded on that, and it's just get out of my way. I'm having an experience. And, I, and more things happen to me when I'm alone, I think. It's true. At the end of the day, someone might say, hey, do you want to see something really fantastic? I would say, yeah, 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 yeah show me. I want to see it. I want to see it. I want to see this. But great if your canyon, partner goes, I'm, wait, I'm just tired. We got to go home. It's just you can't write and be a good partner. I don't think at the same time. And uh, the the ethic has to be, or the, the modus operandi, if an opportunity presents itself, you say yes, and you've got your notepad. That's true. But I'd I'd like to say one thing. Sort of, um, you've been a traveler your whole life. I have been too. And people ask me. They sometimes think of me as kind of a downbeat person, uh, cantankerous or doubtful. I try to see things as they are. But most of all, travelers have to be optimistic. No one would leave home if he wasn't or she wasn't an optimist. And so I want to be optimistic about the world. And optimism keeps you young. Optimism keeps you positive. And all travelers need to be optimistic or else you might as well just stay home. Yeah. One of my one of my phrases is when as a tour guide is, if it's not to your liking, change your liking. And one phrase I've been saying a lot lately in my teaching is, I've found, having spent a third of my adult life living out of a carry-on-the-airplane-sized suitcase overseas, that the world is filled with love and joy and beautiful people. If you're, if you're going to be at odds with the world, you're probably a person that doesn't have a passport and lets commercial news media shape your worldview. Because if you can get out there, you gain an empathy for the other 96% of humanity. I totally agree. That's well said, Rick. Well said. Words to live by. Yeah. So it's just it comes across in your writing, and uh, and and you don't need to get smiley face awards to be a good traveler and to gain an empathy for the world. One thing I've noticed in traveling is it's kind of like fishing. Sometimes you got to fish a long time to to get a hit. When you're writing, you stumble onto these little moments that you can't make. You can't book an appointment for. You've just got to be out there. You've got to be making mistakes. You've got to be you know changing your plans. You've got to be rolling with the punches. And then they flutter by like beautiful little butterflies and you grab them. And then you come home and you sort them out and you put together what you set out to put together. Yes, that's true. And what, what you said, which is the discoveries, that's what keeps you going. Each discovery, you stay in a place long enough to make a discovery, make a friend, make a discovery of some kind, something to write about or something to enlarge your worldview. That's very helpful. When, when people say they've got writer's block, I say, well, write about anything. Just keep writing. Because the process of writing, like the process of travel, constantly puts you in, in a position where you're making a discovery, so where you're discovering important. something about you're yourself, so right on. something about yeah, the world. I, I, don't, I don't get writer's block because 
if I can't figure out the introduction, I just dive right into the middle of it, and then you can sort it out later. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Paul Theroux, and Paul's latest book is Under the Wave at Waimea. Paul, I've looked at photographs of you in your beautiful studio in on the north north shore of Oahu, and uh, you've got a lot of souvenirs. You could make a museum with all the things you've acquired over the years. What do you bring home, and, and what do they mean to you? I bring home things that that I can carry, things that are accessible, things that I've never seen anywhere else. Some of them are museum quality. Some of them are just knickknacks, but they're things that remind me of the place. And the last thing I got was in Madagascar. It was the egg of the giant elephant bird. I found it in a village in, the, in a place called Nosy Bay in the north of Madagascar, and that is... Uh, that was a prize. It's an egg, but it's a very, very big egg. You know, you just turned 80, and you wrote once that uh, I was once the hot shot, I was once the punk. Are you still the hot shot and the punk? No, thank God. I'm an older, wiser. I'm what in, in Hawaii is called a kupuna, a respected elder, and that I'm, I take a lot of joy in that. All right. Paul Theroux, thank you so much for all your writing, and happy travels for a long time to come. Thank you, Rick. Bye now. Paul Theroux's book, The Mosquito Coast, was recently adapted as a series for Apple TV starring his nephew, Justin Theroux. There's more about that at paultheroux.com, spelled T-H-E-R-O-U-X. Samantha Brown's been enjoying Quebec City in the winter, heading up the Hudson and traveling down to Fort Myers in her latest TV series. She tells us what keeps her traveling next on Travel with Rick Steves. A big part of getting the most out of our travel is understanding why we travel. When travel host Samantha Brown goes somewhere new, she looks for all the ways to fall in love with the place, from hidden gems to blockbuster sites, from the local flavors to quirky tidbits, from time-honored traditions to modern innovations. She hosts the public television series Places to Love, and she joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to talk about why she travels, why it's important not only to discover new places to love, but also to love discovering new places. Samantha, thanks for being here. Oh, my pleasure, Rick. I'm so excited about your series, Places to Love, because it just this love of travel comes through. Is part of how good a place is a matter of, of what the traveler brings to it? In other words, is that a travel skill, or is that just because the destination is a slam-dunk place to love? You know, I, I think it is a bit of a travel skill. It's certainly one that I developed. There are definitely the, you know, must-see great cities. Usually they're the capital cities around the world or places. But then there are these little spots and those, um, I call them B-sides. You know, you have A-side records, A-side, B-side. It's the B-side cities that actually offer, I think, a traveler a lot more. And it's not obvious and there aren't 10 top things to do or maybe they are. They just aren't the well-worn, sort of well-known things to do. And yeah. then you discover them on your own, and it becomes it becomes more personal that way. So, yeah, I think that is a travel skill. You know, that is that is interesting because there are some things that are just mechanically great, and there's other things that have a, a warm, intimate magic to them, and they're different. And I guess it's a lot like people. When you're dealing with uh, getting to know somebody, uh, it helps to see them on their terms and in their context and I think it's the same with sites. Well, that's so true. It, and really, that is a, a traveler skill that you realize that these people, this place isn't for a performance for me. I need to meet these people in this place halfway as well. I need mm -hmm. to reach them. That's my role as a traveler is to understand 
what makes this culture unique and how can I be a part of that? Um, not show me what you've got kind of thing. So I, I love that more in-depth, more personal type of travel. Samantha, I've been enjoying your season four of Places to Love. You know, you've done destinations on, what, Quebec City, Dutchess County, Fort Myers. How do you bring your attitude to there? Tell me about what's to love in Quebec City. Oh, gosh, so much to love. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you appreciate this. It's really our most European city in North America. It still has its, you know, its ramparts, right? It's, it's fortress mm-hmm. uh, feel. It's a walled city, which is, I think, the only one in North America. And then it's the uh, Quebecois. But what I love about it and what we really showed is just the gusto that even the city folk have. City people aren't really known for that gusto, I guess. But in Quebec, oh, there's a gusto for life and um, Mm. excitement and especially being outdoors in winter. So we loved that attitude like you talk about. It's just your approach and your perspective. And where some people think the winter is, oh, stay indoors, the Quebecois or the Quebecers just head outside and have an absolute blast. So we wanted to capture that in a show that just pure joy. Mm. And Quebec City, is it's got a history. It's got fortifications. It's got French culture. And it's just north of the border. Exactly right. So you definitely have that that European feel and the beauty that people love Europe for uh, is really, really closer than you think. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're exploring the fundamentals of good travel with Samantha Brown. She's the host of Places to Love on public television. Samantha's website is samantha-brown.com. Now, you're an actress first, right, and then a traveler? Oh, gosh, no. Thank you, though. Um, I, I, went to, <laughs> I went to school for musical theater, which is actually a, a major in a, in a respectful college, Syracuse huh. University. Musical theater is where you train to be acting, singing, and dancing. And uh, came to New York City to pursue that. Boy, it's it's tough competition. And so just one audition led to the next, and I became a host on uh, the Travel Channel. And I was like, what's a host? Um, no, I'm an actress. I want to be in Shakespeare in the park. Right. But then I was like, wow, this travel thing is pretty amazing. So I've, I've been a full-time traveler for 22 years now. But I've noticed that you bring sort of a, a love of music and a dance and just a sort of a, sort of a stage presence to your um, hosting, which really distinguishes your show compared to a lot of other travel shows. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I feel like, you know, with my acting background, what I I knew I I wanted to be less of a host and more just a real person who people could connect with. In the same way you go to the theater and you connect with characters, I wanted people to connect with me. And the way you do that is to be a real person. And so just to show that I wasn't an expert, um, so I didn't try to be one in my beginning years of travel. And another thing you learn, which is really interesting in acting, is that Whatever your intention is, it's never in you. It's never about you. Your intention is always in the other, of finding out about the other person. And so that is something you absolutely take as a traveler. My show, even though my name is on it so people know it and know me, isn't about me experiencing places. It's about connecting the viewer to that experience, to that person, to that place. Now, that is fundamental, Sam, that you are aware of that, mindful of that, as you are hosting your show. And you're the the name, you're the personality, mm-hmm. you're the face of the show. But you don't feel that when you see you interacting. It's a, a genuine focus on where you are, and you become kind of the conduit for all of us viewers. 
Yeah, that that's the best part. I mean, I think when I in the beginning where I thought it did have to be about me, I thought there was just so much pressure and I didn't really think I was that interesting to be honest, and I thought mm-hmm. the people who I got to be with, I just wanted to know more about them and really know them on a more personal side and understand that who I was was someone who a television audience became comfortable with. So when they saw me do things that might be out of their comfort zone, then maybe they felt more confidence to try it because, hey, if she can do it, I can do it. So I never wanted to be like the rock star traveler or like, look at me, I'm an expert. I I make mistakes all the time. And I I hope that means that people watch the show and just be like, hey, you know what? She went there and she felt confident and she enjoyed it. And so I feel like I can do it too. So when you have that, when it's not about you, it becomes so much easier. I think that's part of the joy of the show. Hey, we're talking with uh, Samantha Brown. We're talking about why we travel and and, uh, how we travel well. Samantha is the host of the public television series Places to Love, and that's where she invites viewers to discover the emotional heart of travel in destinations all over the world. You'll find links to Samantha's work with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Our email is radio at ricksteves.com, and Dana in Thousand Oaks, California, emailed us, and Dana writes... I seem to be invigorated and on a natural stimulant when I travel. I am guessing that that is very common for most people. So a natural stimulant when you travel. Samantha, do you get charged when you're traveling or is it just kind of exhausting? Oh, no, absolutely. I I totally agree with her. There's something about landing in a new place and you know you're totally anonymous, right? You can just go wherever you want um, hmm. and just be a part of things. I'll never, like even in Hong Kong, I, I've gone there four times and every time, as soon as I land, I can't go to sleep. It's like it, the energy of a city picks you up and takes you and you just can't stop walking. That's why I like European cities as well. You can walk everywhere. Oh, yeah. It just, you know, and it gets you to the end of the night and then you can finally crash and, and hopefully reset your jet lag clock. Well, that's a good way to deal with jet lag just to get out and walk. But I'm just like you. I get to Europe. I should be exhausted, but I'm right there. My hotel's two blocks from the Opera House in Vienna. I mean, I always like a hotel right in the center. And I just, I make a point to get out and I, I call it my, um, my my welcome walk or my hello Barcelona walk or whatever because uh-huh. I haven't been there for a while. And I don't even bring my notes and my research work with me or whatever I'm doing. I just go and completely get to know the city. I just, if, if it was a swimming pool, I'm just jumping into it and splashing around. It's a wonderful way to just celebrate where you are. It's interesting that you do the, the same thing. Oh, definitely. I don't know if I have a name to it, but I always recommend when people arrive, Mm -hmm. check out your immediate neighborhood and make it your neighborhood. So find that coffee shop that you can begin your day at as opposed to having coffee at the hotel where all the other travelers are. Like go where the locals go. Where where's that place that when you're absolutely starving coming back, you don't, you know, go to some fast food place, you know it. And and so just see what's up around you and create your own little neighborhood and, and then you've got it. You feel more confident about where you are. Samantha, by the way, we've been living and working through COVID, and we've not been able to travel or do our TV production as normal for over a year now. Um, how have your production uh, plans and your agenda been impacted by COVID, and, and uh, how are you dealing with that going forward? Well, uh, during the year the pandemic started, um, we were set to do 13 episodes, and we ended up doing five, which is incredible. We even got five. Two of those mm-hmm. episodes were shot during the pandemic, so our Dutchess County and our Sanibel and Fort Myers. And with all the safety protocols in place, we knew we could travel safely and shoot it safely. 
that mm-hmm. doesn't mean we shot it the exact same way. We really altered how we shot the show, how much time we spent with people. Everything was done outdoors. It was not as spontaneous as I usually am with my travel shows. And then we have um, season five already planned. So we're taking it slowly. We manage numbers, understanding that, uh, you know, it's it's always a concern and that there are ways that we need to interact with people that keep everyone safe. But we and of course, we're staying in the United States. I guess that's the, that's the big yeah. thing that uh, we're, we're not going abroad at all and don't have plans to. You can get away with that. I've got a show called Rick Steves <laughs> Europe. I can't do Rick Steves Europe in the United States. very. Well. I suppose you could find European type places, but uh, I'll leave that to you. You know, when I'm I've been home and, and I've been thinking as I've been home, I can employ what I call a traveler's mindset right here at home and, and kind mm. of be have that joy of life and that curiosity and so on right here, even though I'm just kind of, you know, kind of stuck at home. During COVID, you're a traveler and you are basically unable to travel like you want to. How do you deal with that at home? Well, I live in Brooklyn, New York, so we have incredible diversity, great places, great little neighborhoods, so we always head out. That's something that I wanted to teach my kids. I have twins, a boy and a girl, and we go for long walks because I don't want them to lose that. Like, we go out for five-hour walks because when you travel, there is a tremendous amount of, I feel like, stamina needed because you're just you're just going and you just want to see as much as you can. So every weekend we have adventures and we just go and, and set mm-hmm. out. And one thing that I recommend for people to do is that even in this time – where so many, there's been so many local businesses closing down because of the pandemic, there are so many more opening up. And wouldn't it be wonderful to just plan a weekend where you visit those new businesses and introduce yourself to the business owners, whether it's a Hmm. local shop, you know, maybe it's a pottery shop, maybe it's a new bookshop, who knows, a cafe, and just strike up a conversation, get to know them, Hmm. because they are your community, and they have opened a business in the most trying time known to us, in the history of us. And that's what community and what we want to bring when we travel as well. We want to get to know people. We want to understand the local shops and mom and pops, and you can do that. That reminds me of a beautiful moment I had in Bosnia. I was in Bosnia after the war there. And uh, there's a little bit of tourism, and I was leaving my hotel, and I was just inclined to take a left and go down to the river by the famous bridge and go to the little strip of tourist restaurants. And I thought, no, this this town has just been ripped apart by war in the last few years. I'm going to go to the right and go to into the what was the battle zone and see what's happening as people are getting their lives back together. And I sat down at a restaurant, which was just opening up, and... I got to talk to the the entrepreneur who was starting it, and he chose to put his restaurant right there in the middle of where the sectarian fighting was, and it was like a little budding flower, and mm. and uh, it was so cool to get to talk to him, and it was a wonderful moment, and it was because I decided to turn right instead of left where all the tourists went, and uh, it was a little bit out of my comfort zone, but it was hugely rewarding, and and those are sort of decisions we can make. Do you ever find when you get out of your comfort zone that it's that it's something that would actually have been a smart thing to actually plan to do from the start? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there are ways to get out of your comfort zone that are still within it. And so, you know, if you're going to, like you said, just if everyone went right, you went left. Mm-hmm. And that changes everything. So if everyone heads to the Champs-Élysées or right. uh, the Las Ramblas in Barcelona, If you just head one or two streets over, those parallel streets and side streets are where the local shops are. 
they are right next to that main tourist thoroughfare. But the real people, the locals don't go to those places because the, the prices are too expensive. The restaurants don't have to be good because they have a steady stream of people who are come and will never go back. And so you want to get to those places where the community is because now you're not just supporting a travel industry, you're supporting a community. And so what I like to tell people is that you're not going totally, you know, so many travelers say, hey, you have to get off the beaten path and go. You really don't have to go far that Mm -hmm. off the beaten path. Just go to the path that everyone goes and now take a walk and use that as a jumping off point to explore. And just just like you did, it wasn't like you took a cab or knew a special driver who took you to a special place and knew, you know, you just went left and that changed everything. And that's that mindset that I think you and I both like to really encourage people to have. It's that curiosity and just to go in a slightly different direction, nothing major, just slightly, and you will have a very different and more rewarding experience. I think you nailed it. Samantha Brown is the host of Places to Love on public TV, and she's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves as we explore why we travel. She posts travel tips and videos at samantha-brown.com. We've been dealing with a lot of of, uh, culturally broadening uh, activities as we travel, but also during COVID and during this interesting time we're living in. I'm just curious. I'm a privileged white male. I get to travel. I get to make a TV show. You're a privileged white female. We're in the midst of this, you know, these growing pains of a broader perspective from a travel point of view when we travel, but also here domestically from a a gender and a diversity point of view. Have you thought much about this lately as as you've done so many things with your work? Oh, so, so much. And I, I think the more diversity, the better. There is no doubt that, you know, representation matters and... It's just so important that people see themselves. And I know that I can't represent everybody. And I know I don't. And I just mean to, you know, represent who I am. But um, how I am perceived might be very different than how a black person, a black woman is perceived in different countries. So it's so important that we have so many different travelers out there and where, you know, social media can be really annoying and Instagram and that whole part of our world and the fear of missing out mentality that I think it produces. But one thing I love about Facebook and especially Instagram is you see a wide variety of different points of view that are coming from people who are Indian, who are uh, Malaysian, who are uh, Black American, who are Caribbean, and they're traveling all over the world. And I love getting their perspective. And a lot of times it's not too different from mine, but I love the fact that everyone travels, right? And travel is for everyone. So I I think social media is definitely a great place to get that more diverse perspective. So I encourage your viewers, I always encourage my viewers, reach out. I try to, you know, talk about people I follow as well. But TV really needs to step up uh, in terms Mm -hmm. of showing more representation, more, more hosts at the helm of cable TV shows that are people of color. It's it's really up to them um, as well. And then when we put our shows together to celebrate diversity, I mean, a kind of fundamental to good travel is getting out of your comfort zone, celebrating diversity, realizing that probably uh, any challenges one might have is based on the fact that they don't know that person yet. And if we get to know each other, we do that through travel. That's a celebration. I agree. Samantha Brown, congratulations on Places to Love. Look forward to your new shows on public television all over the United States. And happy travels. 
Oh, thank you, Rick. Pleasure being with you. Put on a stylish scarf and get ready to explore Paris in the wintertime. And get ready for Dingle Bells as we hear about the Christmas traditions of a small town in the west of Ireland. That's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. We'll place a call in just a few minutes to Dingle in the wilds of County Kerry, Ireland. That's where an old friend lets us in on how they enjoy Christmas traditions in the Irish-speaking west of the island. Let's warm up to the fast-approaching Christmas holidays with a stopover in Paris. Tour guides Arnaud Savignon and Kristen Michel joined us in our studio a few years ago to tell us what they like best about living in Paris. It's one city that really knows how to add a dash of style to winter, even after the holidays. Arnaud, what's it like in Paris this time of year? It's cold, humid, damp, windy, isn't it? It's very, very cold, yes. Yeah, it's a, it's a penetrating cold. It's a penetrating cold. Yes. And travelers have to remember, it just because it's 44 degrees, I think that's the average temperature in December, uh, you're out for hours at a stretch, so you want to dress almost like you're skiing. Yeah, layers, layers, yes. layers, yes. layers. And That's be ready for being warm in the metro, so right. to yeah, open so up, you know. Take so. it off, put it on, take it off, put Scarves, it on. Scarves, hats, yes. gloves are necessary. And mm-hmm. You're out there enjoying the streets, as you should as a traveler, mm-hmm. and you've, you've got a wonderful refuge anytime you want. Cafe. In the cafe. For the price of a little cup of coffee, you've yep. got yourself not only a warm break, a nice drink, and a very convivial scene, especially in yes. the winter, perhaps. Absolutely, and with all the lights and everything outside, it's just beautiful, yes. Mm. Everything is illuminated. There's a different feeling in the wintertime in Paris. The days are a bit shorter, so the night falls more quickly, which makes, in my opinion, Paris more romantic in the yeah. wintertime. And that's a plus, I think. I, I think like so. I like Paris after dark. Absolutely, me too. And you get more Paris after dark in the you winter. You actually really see Paris by night more often. And you've got lights, and you've got no leaves on the trees, and no the beautiful leaves. architecture. So you is can there. see the buildings better, mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. And the lights are everywhere. You, you know, know, the French are really into their floodlighting, aren't they? Yeah, they mm-hmm. do a very good job of. They spend an incredible amount of money a illuminating of, Paris. A lot of oh, it's amazing. It's a beautiful time. Mm-hmm. I think the lights even changed at different times in the year, and so on. They just—it's an art form how to show off your beautiful mm-hmm. architecture yes. with the help of lights. Absolutely. Let's talk specifically. November, if somebody's planning. I know they've got the, the Beaujolais Nouveau. Ah, mm-hmm. uh, Beaujolais. Yes, the Beaujolais. Tell me I, about that. Well, it's... Uh, I don't, maybe, Christian, you like it better than I do. Uh, for me, I, I don't consider Beaujolais Nouveau as a real wine. Or, what, what is it, what is I it don't first think, of all? I don't think but, many people consider Beaujolais... Yes, it's, it's, not, it's definitely not the, the best wine that France produces, but they have decided to embrace the fact that it is a young, simple, fruity wine, and they have made a holiday out of it. So Beaujolais Mm. Nouveau, it means the new Beaujolais wine. Coming out. It's just been produced, so the grapes were picked in September. The wine was made in October, and in November it's put in the bottles. um, And on the third Wednesday, I believe it is, of the month at 12.01 a.m., by law, so I guess it's the Thursday, really. Oh, yeah, right, it's all set up by law, yeah. Right, you are allowed to cork the bottles of Beaujolais. Mm-hmm. You cannot do it before, and so the cafes and restaurants are full of decoration and bottles, and everyone takes off Thursday from work, and they go wow. to the cafes, and they drink this new, young, fruity wine. So the cafes are staying open. Uh, the Wednesday night is sort of a party, and at midnight, yes. Yes. with great fanfare, they pop this young, simple, not great wine, but it's a, it's a celebration of the new wine. Absolutely. It's just another opportunity to go out and drink wine. Absolutely. But it is. An excuse oh. for a party. Yeah, Beaujolais Nouveau, the third Wednesday at midnight. So actually the third Thursday, the wee hours in November. You can enjoy that. And then there's also an independent winemaker show that's a a big Mm. deal, I I understand, in November in Paris. Mm -hmm. It is. I went to it for the first time this year. It's located at the Porte de Versailles. 
And it goes on for about five days. This yeah. is the last weekend in November, I believe, or late in November, five late days. November, yes. yes. At the Port uh, of Versailles. Port, port. Versailles, port Versailles. It's a, it's a convention center. very large convention right. so, center. So, Kristen, you were just there. I understand there's just like a thousand stands. It is amazing. We were there all day long on a Sunday. We could not make it. We only did maybe a tenth of what was available. You got drunk or what? Uh, no. But no, how no, do you, no, no, yeah, no. But you, you, get, you pay one price, it's right? Tasting, not just tasting. So you pay <laughs> yeah, one price. I understand 15. you pay six euros. And then you've got, do they give you a little tusk bun? They give you an actual glass uh-huh. that it's a it's a great uh, keepsake because it has the Salon des Vignerons printed on the glass. You go in and everything is organized by region. So you have little booths of uh, people from the Loire, people from the Côte d'Ironne, people from Bordeaux, from Burgundy. Yeah, you have to make it to this place. I uh, have to go because oh, it's yes. more than just a wine festival. It's, it's a cultural fantastic. festival with all the varieties of the people And you can France really there. taste you know, all the wines, the variety in France. And you will feel the pride of each region. Oh, yes. Oh, because yes. I, we all know Paris is sort of the, 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 the pinnacle of French mm-hmm. culture. Oh, but there yes. is some culture outside of Paris. Well, uh, the, everywhere, you know, every province is different. And uh, proud. Uh, and, of course, you know, I, I come from Burgundy, and this is... So it all comes together first there. First is Burgundy, and what then is, it's France. What, <laughs> what is the name of this? It's the Salon des... Des Vignerons. Salon des Vignerons. Indépendant. And, so this indépendant. Is a, this yes. is important. It's, independent. It's, so it's, it's independent winemakers' mm-hmm. exactly. convention. Mm-hmm. So you're supporting sure. small mom-and-pop vineyards, nice. wineries. Now, in December... We've got, of course, the holiday season ramping up. And Arnaud, what, what happens to the city of Paris every Christmas? Oh, the city is feverish. Uh, people are running, you know, after work to uh, to buy their their gifts. It's yeah, it's you can feel the tension, you know. It's um, I mean, just to prepare Christmas is a big, big deal, you know. And the windows are, are made up. Do it's all go made up. You've got all the toys. Uh, if you go by the uh, Galerie Go- Lafayette, Go-Mazin. the Printemps, the, the the great department stores, you've got the, all the toys. What's the French word for window shopping? Lèche uh, vitrine. What does that mean? Lick the window. Window licking. Window licking. So you'll go out with your kids and do some window licking. Yes, yes. And no. actually they have a little uh, stage so the kids can go up and really see that the, the toys animated. It's really fun. And they do a new window design every single every year. Every year is different. And yes. things that move, lots of dolls. It, it's absolutely lovely Bears, for children. Whatever, yeah. So that must be a tradition for people to take it the is. kids downtown on yes, Christmas. It is. Now the Champs-Élysées, we all know the grandest boulevard in all mm-hmm. of Europe. Mm-hmm. Yes. It goes all out on Christmas. It's, uh, and you also have now uh, what you call a Christmas village uh, on the Champs-Élysées. Well, there are lots of Christmas villages everywhere. a few of them, actually. But they have, Montmartre uh, as well. Like a, like a German Christmas market. Yes, I mean, kind of. Exactly. Yeah. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're celebrating winter in Paris with Arnaud Savignat and Christine Michel. So November, December, January, February, let's just talk winter food. What sort mm. of festive and, and uh, My cheerier? favorite topic. You mean Christmas food? No, not Christmas food, oh, just, just winter, winter food, food, whatever. Well, what, what would be good, Kristen, in the, mm. special in the winter? Well, first of all, what you're going to see in all the cafes, once it starts to get cold, is they will have large cast iron pots of vin chaud vin on the chaud, counter. Yes. Hot wine. Hot wine, or mulled wine, as we mm. would call it. Spiced. Mm. Spiced red wine with cinnamon and cloves and orange. It's delicious. Now, I've had... Um, French onion soup in the summer, and my Parisian friends kind of go, what are you doing? Oh, yes, come on. I mean, the on- but, oh, yeah. but in the winter? Well, you can eat the onion soup all year round, really. It's a very traditional dish. It's, you know, um, onion. It's very liquidish mm. with cheese in it. You like it, Kristen? I do. I personally don't like it, but, but it's never more, mind. It's very liquidish. <laughs> you, you said it's liquid. I'm the French one here like who doesn't one. like it. <laughs> but it's, it's, a, it's, more, it's more appropriate in the winter, I would imagine. Uh, yes. I mean, soup, you know, is something we really eat at home most of the time mm. in the winter because it's, okay. it's warm. And, and, and it's, you see a lot of oysters out. Oh, absolutely. Seafood it's all the over the season. place. It is. They're oysters for, me, for New Year's, for fantastic. example. The typical meal on New Year's Eve is oysters and champagne.
Raw oysters. Uh, it's raw sure. oyster yes. champagne, perhaps uh, yes. some foie gras as well. Alors, foie gras. For, for me, it would be on Christmas because uh, New Year's Eve is more like a friend party and we just party all night with catering and champagne. Nothing else but champagne is allowed, mm. though. It's true. You know, I'm interested that people are really crazy about the quality hot chocolate, which is very good as oh, a little break in yes. the winter. Mm, you have and to go people, to La Durée for that. You know, that. you hear people, ah, oh, the chocolate. Yes. And I, to be honest, have a hard time realizing how chocolate can be so good. But oh, what is the yummy. advice for the best hot chocolate in the winter? Oh, there's many, many places. But my best for me, as far as I'm concerned, is La Durée. The fancy cafe on the Champs-Élysées. It's, uh, you have three of them in Paris. Okay. Uh, one close to La Madeleine, one in the Champs-Élysées, one in the uh, Saint-Germain area. And that's the shop which makes the uh, best uh, macaron. You know the so, macaron? La Durée. And La Durée. Two words. L-A-D-U-R-E-E. Is that one word or two words? La Durée, yes. One word. Yes. And uh, the macaroons. Oh. They sell 20,000 of them every day. And you buy half of them. No. <laughs> Look how skinny I am. <laughs> Kristen, what are your thoughts on these beautiful uh, delicacies? On the macaroons? Well, first of all, macaron has absolutely nothing to do with what an American would call a macaroon. Mm, that's true. Because to an American, it means coconut. Mm. And it's definitely not that in France. Um, they can be flavored with all different kinds of chocolate, coffee, fruit flavors. Ginger. It's, yes, it's two pieces lime. of meringue with a bit of flavored cream on the inside. They're That's lovely. a nice thing any time of year. But uh, you drop by and, and then, as uh, Arnaud was talking about, the hot chocolate at La Durée. Where do you go for your best hot chocolate? Well, there's one place that's very famous for us. It's called Angelina's. Angelina too. And yes. it's on the Rue de Rivoli, right across from the Tuileries Gardens. And they're famous for it because it's à l'ancienne, which means it's served. It's an actual pot of melted chocolate served with a pot of steamed milk on the side and a, what I would call a small vat of whipped cream as well. Sounds very and low so you, calorie. Very it thick. It is. It's light. It's, <laughs> a, it's a nice light snack. Yeah, but you mix your own chocolate together and you sweeten it as you wish. As what well. is the name of that? Light? Angelina's. Angel- no, Angelina. No, the, the, the style of... Alancien means old-fashioned. Old-fashioned. Ancient style. Yes. Hot chocolate. Ancient. Now, Kristen, you've lived in Paris for four years, and it's it, it feels like it's your hometown. It sounds like it's your playground. I think it's become that. It has, oh, yeah. That's a beautiful thing. Kristen, Michel, Arnaud Savignon, we're in Paris in the winter. Kristen, take me to one spot that you want to take me to really celebrate Paris in the winter. Oh, you know, I'll just walk you down three blocks away from my apartment, down to the metro corner, where there's a gentleman grilling chestnuts over a, a large tin can and the smell is in the air. I look down the street, which is a market street, and there are Christmas lights above our heads. So sparkling lights, uh, the smell of chestnuts, it's winter. Immersed in Paris. Arnaud, give me a a winter image of Paris that you like. Oh, the snow. Snow. We had so much snow these last two years. Oh, it's true, yes. And uh, the, uh, the snow in Paris, which is quite rare. Last winter, we had lots of snow. Three times, actually. It was um, quite amazing. And um, I would take you to the Luxembourg Garden in the middle of the day, in the week, where everybody's working. Nobody goes there because it's too cold and it's just all white and there's nobody there and you feel so, you know, uh, peaceful in a little town. A Parisian winter wonderland. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's where Ernest Hemingway, you know, used to go to uh, the Luxembourg Garden. Loved it. That's where he found his inspiration. You mm-hmm. could be a modern-day Hemingway in mm-hmm. Luxembourg Gardens, blanketed in snow, inspired to mm-hmm. appreciate the city of light. City of light. city of lights. Yeah, it is. Kristen Michel, Arnaud Savignon. Merci bien. Merci beaucoup. Merci, à bientôt. Joyeux Noël à tous et une bonne année à tous. We plan to help you get into the old world holiday spirit over the next couple of weeks on Travel with Rick Steves. 
It's our tradition to invite friends from all over Europe to share their holiday customs and Christmastime memories with us. We'll hear how they enjoy the season in small-town Italy, in Norway, Greece, Germany, Hungary, Portugal, the Netherlands, and the Basque Country, and in London and Prague as well. And in a few weeks, we'll start out the new year with a new look at how Scotland likes to go all out for the holiday. We'll also learn about unusual New Year traditions the folks at Atlas Obscura have uncovered around the U.S. and abroad. Right now, our European Christmas starts on the west coast of Ireland with a call to my old friend Tim Cullens. He's a retired police chief in the town of Dingle, where he and his wife run a B&B. Tim and his son also provide minibus archaeological tours of the ancient sites on the Dingle Peninsula. This is a phone conversation we recorded in our very first year of Travel with Rick Steves. Tim Collins, thanks for joining us. Not at all. You're quite welcome. Um, you wish, I think, to speak maybe on the, the Christmas festivities in Dingle? Well, Tim, yeah. Tell me, uh, what's Christmas like in the west of Ireland? Christmas is a very big occasion in, in Ireland generally, but moreover in the west of Ireland. It's very much and uh, has been a family occasion. Uh, people in olden times, of course, uh, used to return maybe from England when we had a lot of immigration. They'd come from America, they'd make off to be at home for Christmas. So that's quite a quite a party there in the villages, isn't it? Yes, indeed. And they'd prepare maybe a week ahead of the big day. The, the housewives would be preparing food. They'd be making plum puddings, uh, Christmas cakes. Uh, they'd be getting in some turkey, some ham, uh, a bottle or two of whiskey. So the big feast is, uh, is the big feast on Christmas Day or Christmas Eve? Christmas Day is the big one. Okay. And uh, on that day, um, they would uh, prepare dinner and they'd all sit around and they would um, stay inside that day, maybe uh, say, having a bit of a party, playing cards and so forth. No one dares go out on Christmas Day. So one day the streets are deserted in Dingle is on Christmas Day. Everybody's at home with the family eating. Yes, eating and a little uh, drop of whiskey maybe, drop of Guinness, maybe some wine I was creepy in. Wine is getting pretty popular in recent years. And the ladies would have maybe a drop of port or a drop of sherry. Oh, so the port and the sherry is the ladies' drink. Yes, indeed, yes. Okay. And they'd also have Christmas crackers where they would uh, pull these across the table, you know, where there would be Christmas uh, fair and hats and jokes and these out of these Christmas um, so the kids crackers, could, as they're they're called little, them. little, um, like uh, firecrackers, small firecrackers. That type of thing, yes, yeah. yes. So okay. it's, it's very much a fun thing, and the meal could one maybe for two or three hours. No one's in a great hurry. Everyone is relaxed. Tim, what happens on Christmas Eve? Is there a big feast on Christmas Eve also? Uh, Christmas Eve is more or less uh, is leading up to the big one. Normally in Ireland, they used to eat fish on that particular day. They had a, a fish called ling, L-I-N-G, to the type of a cod, salted, very strong, uh, strongly salted fish. And they would uh, cook that with some potatoes and some sauce. And that was more or less uh, a lead into Christmas. I gotcha. There'd be holly and ivy put up on all the, um, the windows. Uh, lights would be put up. Christmas tree would be put up. They'd also put up the crib honoring the, the birth of Christ on the Christmas Day. That would be put up by the children would gather around and make their own cribs with the figures, and that would be put up in the central part of the house and lit up. Okay, so the kids build a, a Christmas crib, a manger scene. A manger scene, exactly, yes. Tell me about the local Santa Claus. Do you have Santa Claus just like we have? Who brings the gifts for the children? Yes, Santa Claus is a big deal here. As a matter of fact, I'll let you in a little secret. I am acting as Santa Claus in the local uh, hotel here over the Christmas. Say it ain't so. So I'll be wearing a different hat. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that's and fun. Santa Claus brings the, the gifts at Christmas, and the idea is that I'll go to bed early and leave some uh, gifts for Santa Claus in the hearth. 
in the hearth. So Santa Claus does come down the chimney. Down just the like chimney, that. and they would maybe leave out a little glass of Guinness there for him. A glass of and Guinness. And they might leave out a few carrots and a turnip for the reindeers. So we give milk and cookies, but Santa gets Guinness in Ireland. Guinness in Ireland for strength, you see. And then the following morning, when the kids would come down, the first thing they'd look for is the carrot. And no doubt there'd be marks on the carrot indicating where the reindeer would have nibbled. Okay. The Guinness and would the be Guinness was gone. gone, of course, disappeared. Right. Proof positive that he had come and gone. <laughs> in England or in Britain, you have Boxing Days. What does that mean? We don't have that. Yes, yeah, Boxing Day in, in, in Britain. In Ireland, it's known as St. Stephen's Day. In Dingle, it's known as the Ran's Day. The Ran is a bird, a small little bird. And in olden times, they used to go out and capture a bird and put him into a cage. And they would parade around the town. All would dress up in fancy dress with masks, young and old. And they would go around the town collecting money. They'd visit all the public houses, all 52. And they would sing. They'd have a fife and drum band. There was four big Rans groups in Dingle. And they would play the town, and there'd be great competition between the different groups to who would have the best makeup and the best uh, masks and things. They'd have masks there, maybe of people like uh, the President of Ireland or the President of America, for that matter, or the Pope or anyone like that. They'd have these big plastic fancy masks. And it is a day of great festivity. Uh, you have an old participate in it. You even might get the parish priest dressed up or the local guard, for that matter, and no one knows who he is. So this sounds like a wild day. It's the day after Christmas. It's a great occasion as well because a lot of the kids dress up and they go to their parents. And for some of them, it's their first uh, encounter with liquor, where they might sneak a little glass of Guinness in the bar All right. under the cover of the mask. And for some of them, it might be, for the boys and the girl, it might be their first romantic encounter as well. So the whole thing is really a rite of passage as well. By the way, the, um, the money that's collected for the, the rands uh, during their collections around the town, in olden times they would collect this money and they would put it together. They might only collect £10, of course, 40, 50 years ago, and they would have a party later on in the new year, buy a, a bottle of porter huh. and have a dance and that type of thing. But nowadays they're collecting for charities. I see. The Alzheimer's and the, the cancer fund right. and these type of things. So Wednesday. Wednesday. It's, okay. it's a, a small little bird. December It's an ancient, a very ancient custom in Dean that goes back into time immemorial. The tradition has been carried on in the places in the west of Ireland, but it's very strong in Dingle. It is a, a day the town really lets its hair down. Tim Collins from the west coast of Ireland, thank you very much, and uh, Merry Christmas to you and all your family. And the same to you and yours. Sloan, bye-bye. Bye. Cheerio. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Kazmora Hall, and Donna Bardsley. We get promotion support from Sheila Gerzoff, website support from Andrew Wakeling. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to our friends at Hawaii Public Radio and the Radio Foundation in New York for their help this week. You'll find more online at ricksteves.com radio. We'll see you next week with more holiday traditions and memories from Rick's friends in Europe on Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. I love art. And in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. It's a greatest hit sweep through art history via the finest paintings, sculpture, and architecture ever. It's all in Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, Art for the Traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com.